Sunday school uh, teacher once asked uh, her children on the way to church, why is it important to be quiet in church? One little girl replies, because people are sleeping. (laughs) (laughs) Now, while um, that may not be the answer the Sunday school teacher was looking for, it probably is one of the better reasons uh, that people could give. We don't want particularly um, you to feel like you've got to stay quiet in church. Um, We don't want particularly rolling or throwing toys. Um, But we, we do want the opportunity for everyone to pay attention including children, as well as grown-ups, to what it is we're learning about today. And we, um, we have uh, an opportunity to hear from God together, at all ages, at all stages, whoever we are. And so um, uh, we uh, need to be careful that the church doesn't feel like it's uh, the only place where you go to meet with God or to worship God. Because this passage blows that idea pretty much out of the water entirely. If anyone is feeling asleep, please make sure you're not too quiet so they wake up. Um, for parents and others, please be chatting away with children to help them understand what's going on. Uh, that's, that's our hope. And now, today's passage from John's Gospel has uh, three incidents uh, with, um, I don't know if you noticed as we read, three little explanations of what's going on. Not just descriptions, but an explanation of what it means uh, by the writer. You know, the disciples remember later, or, or, or whatever it is. Um, now, um, uh, that means we're going to be thinking about um, three different things. There are three points. And in each of those uh, little uh, passages we'll be considering, many passages, we're going to have three questions. Uh, what, what does this teach us about Jesus' identity and Jesus' authority? And Jesus' priority. Um, so uh, those are all in your uh, booklets, grown-ups. Uh, so that might help you kind of follow along as we go through. I'm aware that that quite a lot uh, to, to try and concentrate on. And children, you've got these uh, booklets on your clipboards uh, with questions to answer. And um, if you can answer, or have a stab at answering all of those questions, as you follow along to what I'm saying, I can give you a treat afterwards. Okay, so um, uh, again, feel free to ask, ask parents for help with any tricky uh, questions. Uh, they should help you follow along. But um, the, the first thing is this extraordinary encounter uh, in, in the temple. And we'll spend uh, most of our time on the, the, the two bits uh, in, in the temple. In case you get worried, we're, we're not going to finish ever. Uh, but the, the first episode that, that happens teaches us that Jesus reforms worship. Jesus reforms worship. That means Jesus gets rid of what's wrong and brings, brings it back to what it ought to be. Now, in picture the scene, it's Passover time in Jerusalem, which means it's really, really busy. Uh, Jews from all over the place uh, crowd into Jerusalem, in and around the temple. And, uh, and that means there are potentially millions of extra people around. And this incident was, was a very public incident. Which, by the way, for, for those who aren't um, yet convinced believers of the Bible, uh, this is a very good reason to take it seriously. The things that are written down uh, in this book by guys like John weren't kind of uh, secret things. They were things that were in public, and they were written down within the lifetimes of those who would have been around. 
And so it could easily have been debunked if it was all made up. This was very public, which is good evidence for its truth. Anyway, it's really busy at the temple because people are going uh, to worship God. And that's where God had said people need to go to, to worship him, the, the temple. And uh, there are all these people selling animals. Uh, and the reason they're selling animals is so that they could do their sacrifices that God had told them they need to do. Uh, kill these animals to make things right with God. Uh, we, that, that's a necessary thing. And, uh, and they were changing money so that, so that people could pay the temple tax, which is a good thing to do, a right thing to do. But Jesus comes, and what's his reaction? Perhaps it's a bit unexpected. What, what is Jesus' reaction when he arrives at the temple? He sees all these animals, these people changing money. He goes mad. Yeah, exactly. He goes mad. He's, he's really angry. I don't know if you associate that with Jesus. He gets really angry. Verse 15. Um, open, open the Bible back up if you've placed it. Uh, page 1065. Because uh, it's worth looking. It's not just what I'm saying, it's what God's saying. Verse 15, so Jesus made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle, and scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned the tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it's written, zeal for your house will consume me. And you see, it's not what they're doing that's the problem. That's not the reason Jesus gets angry, is it? Now, what's the problem? It's where they're doing Thank you. Exactly. It's, it's turning his father's house into a market. And the disciples remember the words of Psalm 69. King David, written a thousand years before. And, and, uh, and they remember about this zeal, uh, this passion for God's house. Now, let's just think for a moment what this teaches us about Jesus' identity, about who he is. Because uh, he's calling God his father, his father's house. He's, he's acting like the great king David, and he has zeal for his father's house. Um, in other words, he's acting like the Messiah, God's chosen special one. The centre of all of human history, the one who's everything that God had been promising for thousands of years. This is who Jesus claims to be. Which, by the way, if his claims are false, makes him not only incredibly egotistical, it makes him insane, doesn't it? He's a guy who really needs help if he's not what God promises. But of course, if it is true, then here is the one about whom all of history revolves. It's a right thing that, that our dates in human history are numbered around his birth. In fact, our lives only gain value in relation to him. His identity is awesome. Second, think about what it says about his authority. Uh, he's, he's claiming here to have authority over the worship of God. And he says what you can and can't do in the temple, in, in how to worship God. He, if, if he is who he claims, that shouldn't be surprising. He, he's the Lord of, of everything, right? He made it all. But he has a kind of special authority 
in worship. And in order to understand what's going on here, we need to understand just a little bit about the temple. Because um, the temple was a building unlike any other in the whole world. Absolutely unique. It's the only building specifically designed by God in all its particulars. Uh, it's the only place uh, in, in the Old Testament, it tells us, that sacrifices could be brought. And God sets out, sets out a great deal of specific regulation about how, uh, particularly the sacrificial system, but the whole temple worship could happen. And it's only in that particular place, in that particular way, that God's people could meet with God and not be destroyed. So children, there are some things that are really important and valuable about the temple, which is one of the questions in your sheets. Israel, the Jewish people, had no right to worship God in any other way than in the way that God revealed to worship him in the temple. Now that is a million miles away from our 21st century thinking, isn't it? Um, the, the norm, in fact, the, the ideal now is to treat world uh, religions as a sort of spiritual uh, smorgasbord. To try and kind of take the bits you fancy, the bits you think are right, from every religion or spirituality, take the best from everything and work it out ourselves. And if you're not a Christian, that, that is the most sensible thing to do, isn't it? That makes sense, I think. But not if Jesus Christ is the Son of God himself. Then everything becomes not a matter of choice, pick and choose, but of obedience. As Christians, we too can, can have our own ideas. We can have very set ideas about worship. And, um, and those set ideas often have much more to do with uh, our background, our history, uh, our feelings, than about what God says in black and white in the Bible. And so the, the third thing that we need to pay attention to is, is Jesus' priority for worship. To see this, we've got to see uh, exactly why it is that Jesus is so angry. Because it's not that their external practices were wrong. It's not that they weren't going through the rituals that the Old Testament said they had to go through. They were being quite careful, in a sense, to obey. You know, get the right sacrifices, get, get the right money to offer. The issue for Jesus was that their focus on his father was being swallowed up by all of these animals and being overtaken by, by these money matters. Now this is quite a, a tricky thing to understand. We'll, we'll think about this in, in different ways in, in, in a bit. But, but just remember, Jesus, Jesus reveals to us uh, the, the awesome God who is the creator of our universe and of every cell in our bodies. He holds us in the palm of his hand. He's not just a bigger, stronger version of us. We can't think we, we've got him in our pocket, or, or, or getting down to a size that can fit him into a box. We can only ever approach him with reverence and fear. And to ignore him is arrogance on an unbelievable scale. We've got to do things his way, with a humble heart.
Now, we don't have a temple. But we can do, we can fall into exactly the same traps that these Israelites did. And that's what um, the next little bit uh, shows in verses 18 to 22. It shows us uh, how. Because it shows us that Jesus replaces the temple. He reforms worship. But even bigger than that, he replaces the temple entirely. Jesus replaces the temple. Of course, as Jesus assumes this role of sorting out the temple, the authorities take notice. They would, right? Here's someone who comes along and starts telling people what they can and can't do in the, the temple where you worship God. The authorities are going to take note. They question him, don't they? They demand a sign of his authority. And he responds with these words. Have a look down again. Chapter 2, verse 19. And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Of course, the authorities don't get it. They replied, It's taken 46 years to build this temple. You're going to raise it in three days? Actually, at the time, neither did the disciples get it. And the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, this is a profound thing. It, it takes a bit of time to get your heads around this. Um, and again, we're going to think about what, what this says about Jesus' identity and his authority and his priority. It says, it says something striking about who Jesus is. Again, children, this is, this is really valuable to pay attention to about the similarities between Jesus and the temple. Because he calls his body the temple. And remember, the temple is where God is on earth. That's where he, he, he is present on earth. And this is where the, the sacrifices that deal with our sin could be made. And this is where human beings could meet with God at the temple. And Jesus says, I am the temple. I am all of those things. And this is why he's the centre point of all of human existence. If he is the temple, then in Jesus, we can meet our maker. For the Christian who goes to Jesus, they are never out of the temple. They are in the presence of God all the time. They never cease to meet with Him. They have the greatest spiritual privilege imaginable in Christ. And so let's have a think about what implications that means for, for worship. Because this this shows a new, authority, a new sort of authority over worship. And let's think about it in terms of this story. Because the Jews must have had an inkling that there, that there was something to what Jesus was claiming. To have asked him for a sign to prove himself. Because otherwise they would have just arrested him. And you don't ask for a miracle when someone is um, you know, turning the temple upside down. And you just get the soldiers in and ask questions later. And yet, even though they must have had an inkling, they demand that he prove himself to them. And do you see how upside down that sort of thinking is? 
Jesus says they turn God's house into a market and, and their concern, even though they know there's something to this guy, their concern isn't with how they might have profaned God's holy place and got everything wrong. Their concern is with matters of precedence. Who's where in the pecking order? Who does this Jesus think he is? If they, if they have any idea about um, who Jesus might be, they ought to be terrified about what they've been doing, how they've been putting God into a box, rather than arrogantly questioning his right to do it. I mean, who's in charge in their minds, do you think? Who's in charge? Jesus shows his authority over them and over their worship as he replaces the temple. He says, this is the sign that I can do these things, I'm going to be the temple because you, you'll destroy this temple and it'll be raised again in three days. And that authority comes with it as a great challenge to us because, because there's no longer a temple of stone, the, the, the temple is Christ, and so our temple worship isn't a Passover in Jerusalem, nor is it on a Sunday morning in church or just when we're singing particular sorts of songs it is everywhere worship cannot be condensed to one morning a week when someone asks you where do you worship you can tell them well down the shops and in bed and at the dinner table because our worship must be, for, for the Christian, for those who are in Christ, in the temple all the time, our worship must be 24-7. Everything we do, every hour of every day of every week, it'll either be worship we're doing, or it will be sacrilege. There's no kind of secular, there's no space for any secular activities for the Christian anymore. You know, have you realised that yet? Everything is either worship or sacrilege. And that's true not just for some stage of life, for some period. It's true for every age. Whether you're four or six or twelve or a hundred. At every stage of life, everything we do is done in the presence of God. So children... Danny, you might think this is just something for grown-ups. It's not. Jesus is the temple for everyone. All our lives, however young we are, are lived in the presence of God. For him or against him. And so, flowing from that, we see Jesus' priority for worship. Because in his... Uh, life and in his death on the cross, Jesus abolished religion. Do you see that's a natural consequence of what we're thinking about? He abolished religion. There are no religious activities. He said, Destroy this temple, I'll raise it again in three days. And they did destroy this temple. And the physical temple was destroyed uh, just a few years later. And that temple wasn't replaced. Because there is one temple forever. 
And so the conception that there are holy buildings or holy places or holy times ignores what Jesus did by dying and rising again. There is no other temple, no other holy place than Jesus. And so crucial we get this, or we will put God into a box in our lives. Say he's for this little slice of my life. But, but the rest of it isn't for him. It's one of the reasons I think it's really good for us to be meeting in, in a school uh, rather than in a church building. It, it reminds us week by week uh, that, that we're not in a holy place when we meet together. It could as well be a, a, a rain shelter, it could be a tarpaulin. Admittedly, this is very comfy and it's very nice, but, but it's not holy. It's helpful for us to, to remember that. But the same goes for religious times or activities. Worship is 24-7. It's not a type of singing. It's not an hour and 15 minutes on a Sunday morning. Jesus makes our words at our home, or, or our, our actions at, at the shops, or our, our thoughts at work, all just as much a part of worship as when we sing a song in a moment. So as wonderful as a church is, and as helpful and healthy and important as a singing is, please don't confuse them for what the Bible defines as Christian worship. They are, but that's not where, what worship is limited to. If Jesus is the temple and the Christian is found in Jesus, then all our lives are to be worshipped. And whether or not you're a Christian, I hope you see what a, what a big thing this makes Christian. Christianity, being a Christian. All of our lives, God cares about intimately. Every decision we make is a big decision if it's a choice whether to be in the right or in the wrong, for God or against Him. Now it's very important that with that we see this, this last point, verses 23 to 25, and this we'll see more briefly. Uh, because here we see that Jesus reveals our hearts. And, um, and if you read verse 23, you thought this would be a really triumphant moment in John's Gospel. Verse 23, Now while Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. Now if you've been here previous weeks, we've been seeing each time John's Gospel is written, chapters 20, verse 30 and 31, so that we would believe on the basis of these signs that Jesus does. Hey, chapter 2, verse 23, people see the signs and they believe. Brilliant, right? But look at what happens. Verse 24. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. He didn't need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. Now I think here we get a glimpse. Perhaps our first real glimpse in John's Gospel that believing isn't quite as simple as some people think it is. And uh, we'll think about the same three things that we thought about in our previous two points. Um, sorry if that's not helpful for you, but um, it, it helps me to handle the structure. Firstly, Jesus' identity. Je this is saying Jesus knows all people. He didn't need someone to reveal what was going on. And the reason is he knew the Scriptures. Funny, isn't it? Actually, you don't need to know more than what the Bible says to know what Jesus knows here. 
the Bible tells us what is inside each person. At the heart of a human, the Bible says, is deceitful above all things. Jesus shows us what's in our hearts by pointing us back to the Bible. And what's in our hearts, the Bible says, is sin. Now at the same time as knowing what, what, what the Bible says, Jesus is also God himself. So he, he does see the, the smallest details uh, of each person's hearts, of our hearts, our thinking and our feeling. And that means as people flock to him because he does these miracles, he doesn't trust them. He doesn't believe them. It's actually the same word. They believe him. He doesn't believe them. Because, as we can see, if we carry on in John's Gospel, these are the same people who, not very long afterwards, are going to be shout, cruci- shouting, crucify him. They're going to be baying for his blood, these people who seem to believe him now. And Jesus knows that. He knows uh, about shallow faith. He's the judge of all mankind, because he can see every detail of our lives. When he came, he knew what was on the inside. He couldn't be fooled. And he can't be fooled now by any of us. He tells us as we think about his authority. We, we, We don't have the power to fool him. He has authority over everything. We can't control him. We can't make him ours. By doing certain things or saying certain things. He's the one in control. We can't say a magic spell and get Jesus in our pockets. All we can do is come to him and bow the knee and say, You're the only hope for me. Please, please have mercy on me. And what he'll do is uh, hint at that, I think, in verse 25, when we see his priority. He didn't need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. You see, Jesus' priority is to overcome what is in each person. To sort out what's in our hearts. To deal with the sin inside us. To make us those who believe, not only that he can do great things, miracles, healings, whatever but that he is everything God promised. The real temple where we can meet our maker. The one about whom our lives are to revolve. The one in whom life finds its meaning and its purpose. And indeed to make us into those whose worship of God is pleasing to him. In every thought and word and deed. That's what he will do. He'll transform us. Now that grand process of transformation won't be complete until Jesus returns, but it begins the moment that someone believes in Jesus and has their sins dealt with, sins forgiven. He gets to work in our lives, and he makes us into the people that God designed us to be, pleasing him in every way. Jesus reforms worship, he gives us a new way to relate to God, by replacing the temple. And as he reveals our hearts to us, we see our need for him. Let's pray.